This is the Jazz Violin Podcast, episode 31, and today I'm chatting with Matt Glazer. Thanks so much for joining me today. Um, before I start talking to you about my guest, Matt Glazer, I'm going to quickly just remind you that I am running these jazz violin practice sessions over Zoom at the moment. I started them on lockdown. It's been a really nice way for people to get motivated, motivated to practice uh, because you're practicing together. Although, you know, we are on Zoom, we are still practicing together and it keeps everyone going. So we've been really enjoying these sessions and people have been really enjoying coming along. I run them on a donations basis. If you are interested in getting involved, this is probably the last month where it will be keeping this same format. So I'm doing a last one last sort of push and we're doing some extra sessions. So we have just been doing sessions in the morning UK time, but I have decided to add an extra session. Um, every Monday, Wednesday and Friday now in the evening UK time, which means that people uh, around the globe will be able to uh, get involved a little bit easier. Uh, so there's more choice for people to to join. If you would like to get uh, involved and practice with us on Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays during the months of August, please send me an email at bookings at mattholborn.com. That's every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at both 10 a.m. UK time, that's uh, British summertime, and 5 p.m. British summertime too. So those are the two choices that you have to get involved. We'll be starting this Monday, the 3rd of August, and we'll be running all the way through August. So please get in touch if you would like to join up and start practicing with us. Okay. So today my guest is Matt Glazer. He is a wonderful jazz and swing violinist. We had an amazing chat today about a bunch of different things, how he became the chair of the Berkeley College of Music string department, how he got involved with playing jazz, how he met Stefan Grappelli, how he, oh all the stuff you know he's done everything it's uh, so it's a great chat i really enjoyed it he's a lovely dude and you know he's a funny guy also so please enjoy So how have you been doing in terms of just keeping, I mean, have you, are you guys completely locked down at the moment where you are? Well, different states in the United States are uh, doing things differently depending upon uh, a number of different metrics. So we're, I think we're probably in some phase of trying to reopen but as soon as the numbers start to tick up again, they change the policies and go, go back. 
So I've been basically in my house for four months, and my wife and I live on a little street, and I walk up and down our street for some exercise, and uh, two times we've gone in my wife's car for a drive around the neighborhood. I haven't been to a store in four months. I haven't been out of the house. Uh, We get groceries delivered a couple of times a month. Maybe we'll get food delivered from a restaurant. Everything else we buy is bought, bought, we buy on Amazon. So I haven't left the house. You know, the last thing that happened at Berkeley was this program that I run, the American Roots Music Program. We had a a dinner and a concert, and this was in March 7th, I think, right at the beginning of the pandemic. At that time in the United States, I think there were maybe 10 deaths. Now there are over 150,000 deaths. And at that time, maybe there were 1,000 cases in the United States. And now I, I think we're over 4 million cases. So, mm. um, yeah. so I've been home. Scary. and But, you know, I'm, I'm a guy who's very comfortable just being at home, doing the things I always do. <laughs> so yeah. it's, not, it's not a problem for me. I, I thought it was very funny. Your login uh, password is no gigs. <laughs> so I, thought, I thought that was very brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've been running some jazz violin sort of practice sessions like yoga but for for jazz violin and wow. that's, that's why i've just been mm. sort of walking well, out yeah it's a joke it's my rubbish joke mm. you know we've got to make a we've got to try and find the fun funniness yes. the, the humor because if not we'll just just smash our heads against the wall or something like that right mm. but so let's uh I'd like I'd like to know how you first got into playing music. If that's all right, Matt. Sure. Well, let's see. My mother, uh, both of my parents are deceased. My mother was an opera singer, and we, as we joked, uh, she wouldn't swing if you hung her from a chandelier. <laughs> uh, uh, but she knew all the words to popular songs of the day, like all the standard Tin Pan Alley songs. I remember once coming home and saying, Mom, do you know the song, Yours is My Heart Alone? And she would sing in her operatic voice, Yours is my heart alone, uh, and without you. So she knew all the words to songs. And this idea of learning songs and learning the words to songs uh, is something that has stayed with me and is continuing in my life up to this day. Uh, Over the last year, my wife and I, every day we dance to a song at the end of the day, and I learned the words to a song. And I sing to her as we dance before we go to sleep. So that we've now done over 400 nights in a row of songs. Where, so I've learned 400 songs. These wow. are songs, many of which I already knew. But every single day I set aside some time to make sure I know the words to a standard tune. And I'm happy to send you the list of the 400 tunes that I've done in the last year. Please do. Um, I'm really... I'm really into repertoire. I want to be able to, this was my definition of what it meant to be a jazz violinist. I wanted to be the guy who could go to a gig and play three or four sets of jazz without having to look at a fake book or, you know, I just really wanted to know this. I always appreciated playing with cats who knew a million songs. And my definition of the kind of music I play is this, you know, standards, Tin Pan Alley songs, songs by Irving Berlin, George Gershwin, Cole Porter, Jerome Kern. That music is the music I really want to know. 
so I don't play much music beyond that. I don't play more modern kinds of jazz. Uh, I play earlier styles of jazz. So my father was a fan of black music of all sorts. And so from him, I, I remember growing up, he had records, blues records of Mississippi John Hurt, gospel records of Mahalia Jackson, uh, Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee, um, Billy Holiday with Lester Young, Miles Davis. So all of this music was music that was in my house growing up. Yeah. My father listened to that music. And so he, he was the one in the household who, who hit me to black music. And uh, that was my environment growing up. Mm. I, play, I play the piano. My mother also played the piano. And I took classical piano lessons as a kid. I got a fiddle when I was 13 years old after hearing uh, a corn chips commercial that had a scratchy country fiddle on it. And I really liked that. So my parents got me a fiddle for my 13th birthday. And I started taking the subway into New York City, which is the area we lived in. And I would take fiddle lessons. Uh, you know, old time country fiddle, which is something I've never really learned to play properly. You know, old time music is a particular yeah. thing in the United States. And it's related to bluegrass, like a earlier antecedent of bluegrass. Um, so that's something that I'm aware of and have been around for a long time, but it never really became a master of that. You didn't, you didn't become a master. Is that because you, you, saw, you started and then you moved on to other things? That's a very good question. I guess I just never... Yeah, I, 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 did, I never had a good attention span. <laughs> it was difficult for me to stay with one thing and really stay with it until I mastered it. So also, you know, I'm so I'm 64 years old now. And at the time that I was 13 years old, 50 years ago, the environment in the United States for learning this kind of music was extremely different than it is now. Yeah. You have to put yourself in a mindset prior to the internet. Uh, so if you wanted to, learn about some music you would have to go to a record store and buy a record sight unseen test untested just randomly buy a record and hope that you could learn something from it <laughs> or maybe go to the library and take records out of the library mm. so that's how i learn music you know by going to the library and going to record stores and just buying records um so I quickly, you know, I found the kinds of music. I also listened to the radio. Uh, in the New York City area, there was this great, there still is a radio station, WBAI, and yeah. they played all kinds of folk music and jazz and all kinds of things. And I would turn on the radio late at night and listen to all kinds of interesting things. Mm. It sounds like there's a lot of construction going on near your house today. <laughs> uh, you can hear it. Basically, I've turned the, I've, I've, I've opened the window because it's, it's quite warm. I might, oh. I might close the window, actually. Okay. If you can hear it, then that means it's picking up on the... <laughs> I'll just close the window. Two seconds. We've actually had... You know, what, 
Well, we're, we're actually having a warm day today, which is nice sort of first in, 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 in quite a while. So that's why mm. I opened the window. Mm. We're just not used to it over here. Um, so you, yeah, you, as in you were, yeah, you were talking about how, uh, you know, pre-internet, it was, uh, it was all about buying the record blindly and then, you know, going to the, yeah, going to the library. The, the first kind of jazz, I mean, I, so I bought a re one record I remember buying was called Ruckus Juice and Ruckus Juice and Chitlin, which was like a record of early jug band music. And, mm -hmm. you know, this early, this is music that I'm still learning about and is very much a part of the world that I'm inhabiting now. Mm. And I remember that, you know, it was probably the Memphis jug band, Will Shade, and there was a fiddle and, you know, the, it was this combination of blues and swing and early uh, ragtime and that, that territory was something that attracted me very early on. Yeah. I think also around that time, I probably bought a, a Sidney Bechet record, the great New Orleans soprano saxophone player, maybe a Jilly Roll Morton record. And I remember really digging this music, but I didn't exactly know how, you know, it was all kind of in there together. I was playing country fiddle and I would also get these other records. I think a lot of Americans have a similar experience of growing up and there's such a vast amount of music to check out. You kind of get one record or you hear one thing and you kind of like it. You also learn something else. And yeah, I'm very much in the same mindset that I've been in since I was 13 years old, kind of aware that this American music is these have is this area of vast riches and trying to learn about it and comprehend the world of it. And yet it's difficult to really get your head around it. It's so big. There's so much, um, mm. so much great stuff. Um, yeah. It's interesting to hear you, you know, as, as someone who, uh, you know, I grew up with pretty much with the internet. Um, you know, I was, I can't remember who it was he was saying, that when you, you know when you before that you would maybe go into a store and buy a record or go to the library and get something out and you might end up with some of them the weirdest stuff like some stuff that that's really out there or quite like unknown now you know nowadays you just sort of type at your google jazz and you'll get like you know the top 10 albums to listen to but back you know back before you could do that you might end up listening like you said the thing you said the first jazz record you you um you bought was something I've never heard of there. You just said it. And that, I think that's very yeah, interesting. It, you know, it was, um, it was a compilation record of jug band music. Yeah. And perhaps I bought it because I liked the photograph on the cover. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and I, I had taken the subway into Manhattan. And then, the, you know, you have to understand the physical embodiment of the search for music i got on the subway i went into mm -hmm. manhattan i went to a record store i'm leafing through these records looking at the photographs on the covers unable to listen to any of these records but just looking at them and thinking this looks interesting mm -hmm. i'm also doing this with no guidance whatsoever you know i'm 14 years old let's say and i don't know what i'm doing <laughs> yeah. and then I, but my parents gave me some money every week to spend so i would yeah. go spend it on records I was playing these tunes, like, let's say, old-time country fiddle tunes, and listening to the radio and listening to records. And then I started to play music with people in the bluegrass context. Mm. 
um, I, I, what I heard the, the first improvising violin playing that I really tried to mimic was the fiddler Vassar Clemens, great mm. blue, bluesy, great improviser, bluegrass fiddle player. There was a record that came out. Um, I forget what year it was, but maybe it was 1974 or something like that. Uh, Will the Circle Be Unbroken, which was a compilation of a lot of great country musicians with a bunch of young people added in. And Vassar played fiddle on this whole thing. And I remember getting the record and flipping out. I had never hmm. heard expressive, improvised violin playing like that, very bluesy. I didn't understand how he was making up these notes and finding these solos to play. And I really responded to the sound of the fiddle and the dark quality of his sound and the bluesiness that it was so, so much, it spoke to me so much more deeply than uh, classical violin playing did, or even jazz. I think by that point I had heard Stefan Grappelli and, you know, Vassar's playing really spoke to me in some deep way. Um, so I remember trying to learn to play like Vassar. I don't know the process. What I don't know the process that I used. I think I just tried to play along with the records a lot, mm. see if I could figure out the notes that he was playing. And mm. then when I would go play with my friends, I would. I don't know what I was doing. I was tr tr probably playing the melody to the song that we were playing, and then trying to interject little passages that I had learned from a Vassar Clemens record. Mm. Okay, and that was that was in a in a bluegrass context in a bluegrass context yeah. then you know very shortly thereafter i got a call to join a band called the central park sheiks <laughs> i don't know how they had got my number but you know I, I was maybe 17 years old and really at this point i'd only been playing the fiddle for four years or so <laughs> but uh somehow they got my number and this was a swing band a, uh, an acoustic string swing band and that was like going to college for me because the guitarist, Richard Lieberson, was a great scholar of early jazz guitar. And so now suddenly I'm learning Cherokee and stomping at the Savoy and Honeysuckle Rose and getting on stage with these guys and trying to play something, figure out what to play. So I think at that point I dug deeper into Stefan Grappelli's playing and quickly I think I discovered Sven Asmundsen and Stuff Smith uh, because of the records that I had gotten a hold of, uh, Eddie South very quickly knocked mm. me on my ass. I mean, there was the records of Grappelli and Eddie South playing with Django Reinhardt. Eddie South's playing. You know, I always responded to black music very strongly. Uh, mm -hmm. So, so that set up a world, uh, an aspirational world for me of what's possible on the violin as an improviser and wanting to swing. And these are things that I have not mastered to this day, but I'm in, I remain interested in the same things that I was interested in very early on in my development. Mm. Now yeah. I'm finally, now I feel like I'm really digging into the core of these things that I'm interested in. Uh, it's taken me many, many years of wasted time and fruitless efforts of one sort or the other. I played in the Central Park Sheiks, and that began my career as a musician in New York City. Uh, that's kind of my early career. Okay. 
uh, it's interesting that you say that you you know you're you're someone who likes to flit around or has tends to you know find it difficult to stick with one thing but it sounds like you have stuck with you know it sounds like you've stuck around the same area for a long time yeah if i'm interested in something i'll work on it yeah. if i'm not interested in it i'll i won't work on it so i'm not one of those kind of people who has good work habits mm. as a as a skill i but if i'm interested in something i'll i'm like a dog with a bone yeah. i'll keep i'll keep gnawing away at it and certainly the feeling of swing you know and the idea of swinging on a violin is something that has remained of great interest to me for many many years mm. and i think that you know i guess i always say this to people i really feel like the the only guy let's be frank who really swings on a violin is stuff smith the only guy who really uh, delved deep into what that actually means mm. and there are there are a lot of great violin players in jazz and i knew a lot of these guys very very well um you know i got to be friends with joe venuti and stefan grappelli johnny frigo all kinds of people uh, but the person who really embodied the search for swing on a violin was stuff yeah I'm a big Stuff Smith fan. I love you know, and, and I'm very happy. I, nowadays, I see young people learning Stuff Smith solos and playing it really well, and it's amazing. Yeah. You know, what, I guess what I say about Stuff is that prior to Stuff, there were really only two approaches to playing the violin. There was some kind of classical European approach, or there was kind of a world folk fiddling approach. Though, or you know, and leaving aside, let's say Indian Indian classical music, I'm not exactly sure where that would fit. But you know, there were two basic ways to play the violin: um, folk music and classical music. Mm. And Stuff Smith kind of real, and all the early cats who were playing jazz violin were still kind of out of that European classical mold, one way or the other. Yeah. Um, but stuff reinvented the violin from a purely jazz standpoint. Mm. If you think about it, I mean, Giovanni really swung, but his approach to the instrument really was from a European classical standpoint, and even more true for Grappelli and all these. You know, Eddie South was actually a classical violinist. You know, yeah. um, and all these people figured out a way to swing, and they sounded beautiful, and it was really jazzy, jazz fiddle playing, but. Stuff kind of reinvented his whole approach to the instrument yeah. from a jazz standpoint. He went deep into the core of the rhythmic aspect of early jazz and tried to figure out how you could reinvent the violin and play it from that standpoint. Yeah, he had an interesting way of, you know, you hear some of his lines and they are so violinistic at the same time as being so very jazz, aren't they? You hear Interesting, it you, yeah, yeah. There's so many things that you hear him play and you just think, well, that's just an absolute jazz line, like such an amazing jazz line. And then you, you, you pick up the instrument and often, I guess, when you're, you know, if you do a lot of transcribing of horn players, you'll be like, oh, I love that jazz line. I'm going to work out what that is. And then it takes you about six months because it's, you know, it, it's been played on a saxophone, but you know you play it, you, you you work it out, and it just fits on the violin so well. He really worked out how to use it, didn't he? 
Well, you know, it's it, his notes are the least interesting thing about him. Mm. It, he's not playing. He's not a note player. He's a rhythm and articulation and groove player. So sometimes his notes, let's be frank, are utter bullshit. Like I remember, <laughs> I play. I remember playing Stuff Smith for a classical violin teacher I had years ago, and he said, "That's the greatest bullshit violin playing I've ever heard in my life." <laughs> and so. You know, there are certain passages that Stuff Smith plays that really you can't, they don't, you can't justify them. They don't make any sense. You, <laughs> you can't analyze. He's playing a pattern that's ascending on the violin. You know, it's because the violin is tuned in fifths. He can yeah. play this kind of pattern. And it really doesn't make any sense. It certainly doesn't fit with the chords, but it swings like crazy. And yeah. Um, so. Yeah, I there's... haven't really learned to play many stuff Smith solos, but I I, I feel like he's the cat. Um, yeah, there's a bunch of those things, those absolute stuff isms. Exactly, that's the one I'm thinking of. Also, is it, is it, we're yeah. thinking of the same one. I okay. think so. <laughs> and you can't yeah. sing it because it's just like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Um, so I pl- I lived in New York City, you know, until. Uh, I got a call. I was playing bluegrass uh, with this guitarist, Russ Barenberg, and we got called to come up to Berkeley and do a clinic. And we did a clinic at Berkeley. I don't know. This must have been 1980. And after the clinic, I got a letter from the provost of Berkeley at that time saying, we're looking to revamp our string department. Do you want a gig or do you know anyone who would want a gig? And I didn't even have a bachelor's degree. I'd gone to college for one year to the Eastman School of Music. I dropped out. And here's Berkeley College of Music offering me a job. So I started mm-hmm. working as the chair of the string department at Berkeley in 1981. And there were probably a dozen students and uh, me. I was the only teacher. It was very small. So that's starting this fall will be my 40th year of employment at Berkeley. Wow, I've been yeah. working at Berkeley for 40 years. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's, so that's, that's really, that's interesting the main. That you got to do that with that happened without a bachelor's degree. It was a very different world. You know, that I guess because I had, Oh, I had written this book with Stefan Grappelli. So that, that was that post that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how they hired me. Cause I had just published this book of transcriptions with yeah. Grappelli and um, and I got that job because a few other people had started working with him on a book and they all didn't finish it for one reason or the other. Right. And somebody asked me to do it. And, you know, for all these things, I felt I was very aware that I was not qualified. But the fact that I wasn't qualified didn't stop me from, I decided, look, if someone's offering me this job, even if I know I'm not qualified, I guess I'll learn a lot and try to do as good a job as I can and I'll become qualified in the process. Mm. that's really been my approach to a lot of these things. Um, you know, I, I wasn't qualified to write the jazz violin book, but I did it. And, and <laughs> anyway, I learned a lot in the process and now I know a lot more than I did back then. And I wasn't qualified to teach at Berkeley, but I, they offered me the job. So I took it and I became qualified by doing it. <laughs> you, know? you sound like a modest man. That's what I'd say. You sound like, <laughs> you know, just, uh, I'm just telling you the truth. Uh, I mean, I know, I, I think I have certain skills uh, and certain, uh, I think the most valuable thing for me is that I, I'm, I'm an enthusiast. I, I remain interested in these things. And as a teacher, I can share my 
enthusiasm about these things with people, and I'm willing to spend my all my time talking with other people who love music and are interested in it. And you know, mm. I, I, that's to be a valuable thing that somebody wants to spend all their time thinking and talking about music. Yeah, I, I remain interested in it, and so yeah, so that's it. I've been at Berkeley for 40 years. And I've done, you know, I've written a lot of books in this time, and I've done a lot of things. And what did you learn from doing the Grappelli book? It's so strange, you know. I, I must, to be honest with you, I, my connection to Grappelli, I, I don't feel much of a connection to his music yeah. uh, anymore. Like he was a beautiful guy and such a beautiful violin player, but I don't aspire to play like that anymore. Nor nor was I ever very successful in trying to play like him. But I, I think what I did was I had a cassette recorder and I had a turntable and I probably recorded a bunch of tunes and then I recorded the same tunes at 16 RPM at half the speed mm. and put them on my cassette recorder. Uh, and then I was I just transcribed them as best as I could. Um, and there's one eviscerating review on Amazon called Garbage, where some anonymous <laughs> person says that this book is garbage. Uh, so um, this is the problem with the internet, you know, that anyone with, with an anonymous name can say anything about anything. Yeah. Um, but it was a long time ago, and uh, it was a very different world. You know, it's the problem with that book is that people don't have access to the original recordings, many of which are, don't even exist anymore. Uh, they haven't been digitized. Because Grappelli was voluminous, in yeah. his recording like if he if he didn't have anything to do after lunch one day he would just go into the studio like he made so many records yeah. and his playing was uniformly at such an incredibly high level um but so to me i'm more interested in horn players now like early horn players like lester young and louis armstrong and roy eldridge and you know that world of music is the world that i'm really into and I want to develop my ears. I want to really have the music in my head. Yeah, you know, so this is something that's really been true for me a lot over the last, let's say, 20 years. Like, I was just thinking, I really love Lester Young. And mm -hmm. there's something, you know, I love these horn players who are very ear-driven. They're, the, mm. they're really hearing what they're playing in their mind before they play it. I really am less and less interested as I grow older in kind of di digital players, players who play from, they have great chops or they have great hands and they play f uh, from either their brain or from their hands. I want to hear music from the ear, whatever the ear is. The ear is some hu human musical, internal musical component. Um, and, and I always come back to this quote from Igor Stravinsky who said, he was asked, what does a composer do? And he thought about it and he said, a composer hears intervals and rhythms. Hmm. A composer hears intervals and rhythms. And to me, that's really getting down to the nuts and bolts of music. You, you want to be able to hear intervals, the distance from one note to the next and from that note to the next note, and also rhythms, which happen in a small timescape. Bubatudi you know, each one of those phrases, what is the rhythm of those phrases? Um, 
So I want to be able to hear intervals and I want to be able to pre-hear rhythms in my mind. And so, especially for violin players, the rhythmic vocabulary of jazz is something that eludes them for whatever reason. Maybe it's because, like horn players who used to play in big bands, were used to reading charts that had the rhythmic language of jazz as part of their daily activity. Let's say you're reading a Count Basie chart. You know, the Count Basie chart will have in it all of the rhythms that are common in swing music. And those rhythms are not necessarily familiar to most violin players. So that means their playing is always going to be um, at a loss. It's not going to be imbued with the rhythmic language of jazz, which is the essential quality of jazz. Do you get me? Do you get what I'm saying mm, here? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I, I, over the last couple of years, I've really gone down this rabbit hole of uh, melodic rhythm. That is, what are the rhythms of melodies that people are playing? Uh, so, you know, melodic rhythm is a technical term meaning the rhythms of melodies, whether or not those melodies are composed or improvised. So I've been doing a lot where I take, let's say, Louis Armstrong solos and Lester Young solos, and I take away the notes, and I just leave the rhythms, and I try to practice just the rhythms of those lines, because I want my lines to be imbued with the rhythmic vocabulary of jazz. Um, mm, and this is, this is the way in which Stuff Smith was superior to all other jazz violin players. If you... I dare say that if you took Joe Venuti, Stefan Grappelli, Eddie South, and Stuff Smith and took away their notes and just left the rhythms, the clear victor would be Stuff Smith. Mm. <laughs> yeah. But if you if you only had the notes, then the the loser would be Stuff Smith. <laughs> <laughs> but but since jazz is most rhythmically important, now somebody like Sven Asmundson you know, was a, a disciple of Stuff Smith's to a certain extent. So Stuff was, Sven also was quite interesting rhythmically. You know, he, yeah. he played a lot of interesting stuff. Did you ever get to interact with him in his lifetime? No, no, uh -huh. no, not at all. Sad. I think he was really when, a great cat. When did, when did Sven die? He died maybe two or three years ago. Yeah. Yeah, um, he. I think he had just made it to his hundred. He died somewhere between his one hundredth birthday and his one hundred first birthday. Yeah, I, I think I see. I do seem to remember it. I remember that happening. So I used to really like listening to. I haven't listened to him for a long time. You know, actually. You know, the, the the recordings he made in the late thirties and early forties are just extraordinary, yeah. and he told me that he would often pre-compose his solos. Yeah, which was really an interesting thing because they're clearly jazz and they don't sound for a minute pre-composed. It's similar to this idea of Larry, uh, Harry Lukowski. Yeah, I was going to say you know that, that all, all of those solos were written out for him, and he his wife told me Lukowski's wife told me that he would go in the basement and just practice the shit for months until hmm. the recording and and make it swing and make it sound natural and figure it out and put a fi put a fingering down. Nothing was left to chance with him. And wow. uh, 
and then but it's clear it's a weird thing it's like jazz violin playing but without improvising yeah <laughs> uh, well you know i'm really glad that you've just given me that um that little story of his of his wife saying that because who was it, who was the last person i spoke to on this they said they were like oh no he, wrote, he did it all himself he was improvising so there's, there's that been, is not true yeah there's been back and forth on this podcast i'm telling you about whether you know I've, i and i know each and every moment where it's gone back and forth and i've said hey, is that true so you're well, saying well, you can, i think sherry lukowski is still alive we can we can check with her about her experience i mean it's not going to be she's not going to know every solo he ever sure. played but yeah. it, we we know for a fact that um bob brookmeyer and quincy jones wrote the charts on um a lot of on Stringsville, and I have a bunch of those charts. You know, we know the solos were written out because I have the chart with the solo in right. Quincy Jones's hand and Bob Brookmeyer's hand. Yeah. Uh, Sherry Lukowski gave Berkeley all of those, all of those charts. Right. Now yeah. there are other records he played on. Like there's a great record um, of a flute jazz flute player whose name is escaping me. Where Harry plays some great solos, and I don't know whether he wrote those solos out. That's, uh, that's very cool. I don't know. I have to go back and look at my notes. So. Well, there we go. There uh, we go. <laughs> this is why the internet was invented, for controversies that nobody else really cares about. <laughs> you know, who really gives a fuck? You know, it's like a corner of the internet where yeah. you, know, me, you and me and five other guys can argue <laughs> about... No, you're full of shit. He yeah, improvised. Yeah. No, no, it was written down. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, it's, uh, and you know what? That's why we love the internet. <laughs> that is why. Because no one, you know, where, where else would you? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Who else is going to listen to you? <laughs> None of my friends will listen to you. <laughs> <I know> exactly. <laughs> okay. Um, well, it would be it'd be interesting to hear about how you put together the um the Berkeley you know you the revamp of the Berkeley strings department actually I'd love to hear that well so so I, you know prior to me working there the jazz violinist Randy Sabine was the chair of the department do you do you know who no. that is Randy Sabine is a great violin player. He lives in the Midwestern part of the United States. He's still going strong. And, um, and then there was another guy, Steve Heimlich, prior to me. But I was the first full-time employee of the college whose job was, you know, I was the first salaried employee of the college to, to, to work at the string department. Yeah. So I worked there for many years and hired a whole bunch of people. And then I decided at a certain point I didn't want to do that anymore. And after me, Melissa Howe became chair of the string department. And then after Melissa Howe, David Wall Dr. David Wallace, who's now the chair, was uh, became the chair of the string department. And he's, do he's doing remarkable work there. So it's been going on in its quasi-present form now for 40 years. Um, and it's grown dramatically so that... Uh, now I think Berkeley is viewed in the string world as a place where that is very strong, has very strong faculty in all the non-classical styles yeah. and also quite very strong in a number of classical styles too. Yeah. So, 
you know, the, I, what, in, when I was working there, I hired uh, Rob Thomas, the great, you know, mm. Marine drill sergeant of contemporary jazz violin. I mean, he's really this incredible teacher of, of kind of the bulk of jazz for violin players. He's really incredible. He's an incredible jazz violinist, incredible teacher. Uh, then Melissa Howe, at my suggestion, hired Jason Anik. Mm. And, you know, um, I had hired Eugene Friesen, who runs one of the most amazing chamber orchestras in the world and all kinds of amazing folks there. Uh, Daryl Anger was working there, and then he worked for me in the Roots program. Mm. So I left uh, being chair of the string department, and I started the American Roots Music Program at Berkeley, which is what I run now. And that I, my definition of roots music is all music of any sort that's rural in the United States, all rural, R-U-R-A-L, yeah. all country music of all sorts, and also all early music, all music in the first half of the 20th century, pretty mm. much. So that intentionally broad definition includes all kinds of early jazz, blues, country blues, any kind of country music, a wide range of styles of music that have fed into the creation of of pop and R&B and contemporary music. Hmm. So it's a very, you know, I mean, we'll see what the world looks like after the pandemic. But, uh, you know, I mean, Berkeley is going entirely virtually for the fall semester. Uh, everything at Berkeley wow. will be virtual. Wow. There will be no on-the-ground classes there will be no students in the dorms. There will be no faculty in the college physically. All classes will be given virtually. Um, and that's what, that's a very, it's a wise decision, although very difficult. Very wise decision. Yeah. Because, you know, I mean, in America so far, baseball teams with all their money have been unable to stop these outbreaks of coronavirus. Yeah. And uh, so kids coming back are not going to follow yeah. social distancing and masks and even if they were it's a perfect gonna... setup for more outbreaks yeah, <laughs> yeah. so we'll it's see really, it's it sad though i mean I'm, I, this isn't me saying that it shouldn't obviously it's great and it, it's great that that's what's happening but it is very sad at that isn't it oh it's you know? very sad i mean i'm you know how old are you 31 31 you're you're a kid so oh, right. you're a kid and uh, so i'm more than twice your age and i've had a long career doing all kinds of things if the world changed dramatically it wouldn't be too much of a drag for me because i've already had a long time yeah. having gigs and running around the world and doing things but if somebody like yourself if suddenly the world changed permanently and you couldn't go to a club and you can't play gigs that will be a a big difficulty and for you I, I, my students are half your age yeah. you know pretty much so imagine if you're imagine 20 years them. 18 years old and you're expecting to have a career as a musician and then suddenly the rug gets pulled out from under you and there's no more gigs and yeah um so it's very traumatic emotionally and psychologically for everyone you you guys especially young people especially so. But yeah, I, I I just I think maybe that just suddenly hit home for me there when I thought, oh God, you know, you the whole that like freshers, do you call it freshers? But you know, when you're first going to college, freshman, you're freshman, so we call them freshers. But yeah. uh, you know, you're going in and you're like excited and you're yeah. meeting people, you're having like jams and 
working out what you want to do and yeah it's, it's uh yeah it's real sad that that isn't that isn't happening oh it's very sad but i don't want to wallow in in sadness <laughs> <laughs> what else is sad i don't know uh... <laughs> my intonation is pretty sad that's oh uh, well like tell me <laughs> tell me about it tell me, if you think you've heard you the pandemic doesn't have anything on sadness compared to my intonation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been, I've been making my uh, pandemic uh, situation even sadder by trying to work on <laughs> by, my by playing the violin. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> as if the world is not sad enough. Yeah, yeah, I've exactly. been playing my violin, and that makes yeah. everything worse. Yeah, <laughs> so. I have. I have been worrying about my neighbor well, because we moved into a place just as it's, as we got into lockdown. So we moved in and then I couldn't leave the house and a bit like you, you know, just basically been in for four months. And I got really into um, singing Sagam, which I don't oh, know if yeah, you know Sagam. Well, of course. Because I just got back from India and I'd been getting really into playing Indian music. And oh, how I just great. got really into just singing you know, learning saga. So like every morning, these neighbors, and they're all quite young, I think they're sort of maybe 20, early 20s, you know, just, just, just sort of fresh faced, nice young people, no idea about Indian classical music. And they'll just hear me chanting downstairs for what I imagine is what it feels like to them. So I'm what? worried about <laughs> how they view me, you know, do they? <laughs> like, I think they probably think that I'm super big hippie or something you know but actually you know i'm like oh i'm learning music i'm not chanting anyway i love i love indian music and uh you know i got to be good friends with uh el subramaniam and el shankar oh wow those guys uh, and they're still they're still around I, I lost touch with them but subramaniam especially i knew him very well and i i took a lesson from him once and i you know i played i played something for him and he shook his head and he said oh matt first First, you must learn to play in tune in the Western system. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that's the thing. They've got such good ears. Oh, my God. Like Amazing. crazy. Because you hear uh, them and you just think, you just sort of like, wow, that's, that was so in tune. Like you, every time you hear a good Indian violinist, you're just, I think even the untrained ear hears it and goes, wow, that was really in tune. Yeah, because for them, like a half step is equivalent to an octave. You know, <laughs> they, uh, a half step is this gigantic, comfortable interval yeah, <laughs> within yeah. which within which there's all these possibilities. So yeah. if if we started to think in this very broad way, um, yeah, Indian music is something that I really was into and I haven't thought about in a long time. But you gotta you gotta choose one little thing eventually to really work on and. Mm. you know eventually i chose like okay you know what i want to i want to learn the rhythmic vocabulary of early jazz and um i'd like to learn to sing some solos and learn the melodic language of early jazz and be able to improvise some solos in that style really authentically in that bag mm. yeah it's interesting you said at the start you said you know i don't i don't i play early jazz and i don't play anything past that you know anything sort of past well i think you you say it better than me but you don't you play early jazz you don't play anything sort well of I, i've ex i have experience of all kinds of things and yeah you know i 
I played a gig with Joe Lovano and Kenny Werner. I mean, I played with yeah. I played with Lee Konitz. You know, I, I played with modern jazz musicians. But mm-hmm. as far there are so many. Uh, the way I describe it, like I did an interview with Christian House, and I said to him, "Look, there are a lot of cats now, like you, Christian, and all these." cats who play modern jazz on the violin really incredibly well and that's not the music i don't listen to modern jazz too much i listen to earlier styles of jazz so why am i going to try to play in a bag that i don't listen to that much uh i don't and there are all these cats who are really into it and doing a great job of that i'd rather really try to fix the things in my own playing that i i find are shortcomings yes Uh, yeah yeah, well, I just, you know, there's just a real, now, I'd say, people, there's a thing about being an uh, overly rounded player, and I don't want to put it in too negative terms, but, you know, doing everything, a little bit of everything, and I think it's really refreshing to meet and listen to people who 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 just go, I'm not, I'm not saying you're not rounded, but um, who who go? No, this is I like this, and this is what I do, and that that is it. And I'm, you, know. I, you know, I was known for being a dilettante. I think uh, part of my reputation was I. I mean, I had done a lot of different things, but now I've really tried in my older age. I'm really trying to figure out. Look, time is not unlimited on Earth, and what do I want to do before I die? Let me get to work on the one thing I can. I want to try to master one thing finally. Uh, and the thing I want to master would be, I, I certainly feel like I probably now know as much about Louis Armstrong than any other violin player on earth. Yeah. That's not necessarily a great thing, but I don't yeah. know as much about, you know, on, on his birthday, which is August 4th, I'll be doing a um, symposium about the music of Louis Armstrong with some of the world's preeminent experts on Louis Armstrong. Mm. Ricky Riccardi, Lauren Schoenberg, Brian Harker, Lewis Porter. Uh, as, but as a violin player, I certainly know more about Lewis than any other violin player. Uh, I can, but, yeah, I can so, And I probably know more about Lester Young than any other violin player. <laughs> but that's about, that's where it ends. <laughs> <laughs> well, it would be nice to know what, you are working on at the moment perhaps and what you know what's what's getting you i mean you have told me but what's getting you excited for one thing what are the um what are the things that are you, you know that you're focusing your attention on or that and, and then also the things that you are sort of pushing i guess if you've got any sort of projects well let's see i i i i want to I always want to be the Freddie Green of the violin. You know, Freddie Green was the guitar yeah. player in Count Basie's band. For 50 years, he never took a solo and he never had a microphone. Yeah. He just played acoustic rhythm guitar for 50 years. And yeah. so I want to be the cat who can play the changes of any song on the violin with just two notes. Yeah. Really inside the harmony, the thirds and sevenths, and with good voice leading. So I practice that every day. Whatever song I'm going to sing to my wife that evening, I make sure that I can play that song in any key on the bottom and strum the chords on the bottom two strings of the violin. So very, very restricted practicing, very limited. I just play on the bottom two strings of the violin. I just play two notes. I'm playing the thirds and the sevenths. I'm trying to place chords through the harmony of the tune. uh, And I want to be able to do that in any key on the bottom two strings of the violin. Uh, so that's how I practice. That's my daily practice. 
how how do you go about doing that then just really briefly i mean I, you know how how do you how do you work on on that say you're going to try and do it in every key do you how do you do that i sing the melody yeah and then i play the i come up with good voice leading two note chords so um Do you know yeah. like the tritone shape of like, yeah. let's say you're going around the cycle. Yeah. So like G natural and C sharp for yeah. A seventh, and then you go down a half step to F sharp yeah. and C for D seventh. So using that as a template, then you can do E minor seventh would be G and D, and the D goes down a half step to C sharp for A seventh. Mm -hmm. And then C natural and G is A minor seventh. The G goes down a half step to F sharp. That's D seventh. So yeah, I want to be yeah. able to do good, simple voice leading. Yeah. Um, in every key. In every key on the bottom two strings of the violin. That will be, so that way, the reason it's important to do just the bottom two strings is, and I'm just in first position. You're you're really mastering a very limited bit of territory and completely mastering it. Mm. So the limit the limit is you're just playing on the G and D string. And then you're just playing, you know, from G five notes up to D, let's say the perfect fifth. Yeah. And that in that little area, you're trying to master the harmony to a tune in any key, any one of the 12 keys that you might play that tune in. Yeah. And that it's also a mental exercise. You're yeah. you're really thinking of the harmony of the tune and being able to then map out the harmony of the tune on the violin. If somebody told me that I could only play in first position the rest of my life, I'd be totally happy. There's, you know... Yeah, I'd be relieved, so to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> what a relief. I don't, yeah. I don't have to go up to the fucking neck of the... <laughs> I, I never knew where I was anyway up there. Like, it's always yeah. difficult to find those notes, and they sound terrible anyway. <laughs> even if you're Yasha Heifetz, who wants yeah. to hear that note, those notes? Yeah. So really, let's try to master the map of the violin in first position yeah. completely. And that yeah. would mean, you know, knowing the harmony to a tune, hearing it in your head, being able to transpose that harmony to any key yeah. and mapping out the fingerboard. So yeah. that's something I believe in. And as it, it's something of value on yeah. a gig yeah, uh, uh, because you might have to play a song Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, you know, even the the process of doing that, just it just sorts your ear out so, yep. so nicely as well. I feel like the process of being able to do that with like even just 10 tunes, 10 sort of well-known standards, if you can do that with 10 tunes, yep. you're never going to have a problem playing a standard on a gig again right really that's so beautiful right exactly so let's make a rule a list of the 10 tunes it's a manifesto yeah it's a manifesto that we have made today at noon eastern standard time on friday the two mats have made a manifesto <laughs> uh, the two mat manifesto it says here are 10 tunes and all violin players now need to learn these 10 the harmony of these 10 tunes in all keys on their instruments. So in first they, position. In first position. And uh, do we start uh, alphabetically? Or? <laughs> I'll leave that to you. <laughs> All right, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go now. I, it, was, it was lovely to talk to you, Matt. And, you too, uh, Matt. If you have any more questions, please feel free to contact me. Yeah.
Thanks right, a lot, take Matt. Care. Bye, All right, man. see you. Thanks so much for listening to the Jazz Violin Podcast today. I've been chatting to Matt Glazer, and uh, I've been Matt Holborn. In case you didn't know who that was already, I'm sure you do, because, well, maybe not. To be honest, you probably don't. You probably don't think to yourself, who is this guy? You're probably excited about the guest that I'm talking to every time you listen to this podcast. You probably are not thinking, who's this Matt Holborn guy who keeps asking all these weird, boring jazz violin questions to these amazing musicians? Um, I'm doing that thing again when I ramble at the end of the episode and uh, maybe you're listening, maybe you're not. I reckon there's probably about 85% of you have dropped off by now. But for the, that 15, is it 15%? For that 15%, that's some bad maths, isn't it? I think it's 15%. Fifth, for that 15% that are still listening, thank you very much. And uh, yeah, if you do want to keep, uh, sorry, if you do want to get involved with these jazz violin workshops and sessions and you want to listen to me rambling, like this, but more about specific jazz violin stuff, then uh, please send me an email. You can uh, do so. So email at bookings at mattholborn.com. And uh, yeah, you can, get, you know, that's if you're listening to this during the month of August. I don't know if it's going to still be going on past that. So August 2020, it is, isn't it? Yeah, August 2020, get in, get in touch with me and uh, join these jazz violin practice sessions. It's great for people who are either just getting into playing jazz or, you know, just want a fresh outlook on how to, uh, how to learn to play jazz. Uh, it's a nice community-based thing. It's all done on donations and we're sort of practicing together in a way. Like, I'm, you know, it's, it's, it's very... Uh, gives you a feeling of togetherness in these uncertain times. Anyway, this outro is miles too long. And uh, that 15% of people that I was talking about who had maybe stuck with me, it's probably turned to uh, 5% now. So I'm going to stop. Thank you so much for listening and uh, see you next time. Bye.